you're listening to the FASD Success Show with Jeff Noble. Today, we are talking about the stories behind the studies. I will be chatting with Dr. Penny Cook and Robin McCarthy out of Southford University in the UK. We're going to be discussing the first prevalence study that was released in the UK earlier this year. It's an amazing story because we're going to be talking about the different messages women have received in the past about drinking and pregnancy, and some are still receiving today. The process of finding funding, how participants are selected, and some barriers the researchers faced. Reactions of potential funders, parents, reaction to the study in whole. It is an interesting story. You'll see how hard these women work and this team works to make things happen. So let's get after it. Welcome to the FASD Success Show, the only podcast where you can get real-world information about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This show will help you create calm in the chaos, have hope for the future, and more importantly, save your sanity so you don't lose your flipping mind. Now, here's your host, caregiver turned world FASD educator, Jeff Noble. Ah, uh, yes, yes, y'all. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to episode number 93 of the FASD Success Show. This show is all about creating success for anybody that is in the FASD community. How do we do that? We do that by talking to cool people, man. Cool people who are doing cool things, who are striving, who are thriving, who are working hard to give us the information and to share their stories so that we can make our lives better because it is tough. If you've heard this podcast before, if this is your first podcast or your 93rd podcast, A, thank you for being here. And B, you would know that I talk about raising an individual. I'm sure being an individual on the spectrum is hard. But raising somebody was the hardest thing that I have ever done in my entire life. So as a former foster parent, it is incumbent on me. It is now my life's work to try and get some information out to all of you who are listening to the show, who continue to listen to the show. It just blows me away when I look at the numbers and I say, man, people are listening to me. And you don't turn it off, which is, I appreciate. I appreciate that you're not turning it off. And I just, freaking, you're awesome. Thanks for being here. If you like the show, you know, this is what I say, the preamble. If you like the show, by all means, subscribe. You subscribe to the show, it helps you, it helps us. It helps you because as soon as we drop a brand new episode, you don't got to go looking for it. You don't have to search it goes right to where you subscribed. It goes right to your podcast player, whether that's your tablet, your smartphone, however you do it. That's where we're going to be there. As soon as we upload it, boom. And so you, you never miss a beat. Second, it's going to help us. Of course, we want to reach as many people as possible. And our reach is growing and the listener base is growing. And the feedback I'm hearing is that we're helping. And we want to help more. So by subscribing, it helps us because it shows the algorithms, you know, the bee boops in the back that our show is relevant and our show is good and our show will give the answers that people are looking for. And that's how to make sense of this. That's how to make sense of FASD, which is, as we know, the largest cause of intellectual disability on the planet. You know, they say the Western world, but come on, anywhere there's alcohol, there's fetal alcohol. And so it is tough and life's tough. And so I hope you spend this time with me, the hour or so with me, and that you learn something, you chuckle at my expense, and you hear a good story and, and possibly a good interview. Because we all have to get away from what is going on out there. You know what? I'll tell you what's going on out there. You know, I like to talk a little bit about my family. Because I don't have anybody else to talk to. Like, I do? 
but you're my people, so I'm talking to you. So what's going on is, if you listen to the last episode, which was awesome, thanks for all the excellent feedback. Go back and listen to number 92 with Dan Dabowski, the original OG, you know, when it comes to FASD. And one of the first person I've ever heard do a training, and he's heavily influential and just full of wisdom. Anywho, if you've listened to the recent past, we have been keeping Olivia home from daycare because of coronavirus, right? Because people were getting it at her daycare. And so this is my thought process. You might have a different thought process, and that's cool. That's why we're different. But I'm like, man, I'm not going to send her there. Even from what we know about the Omicron, it is upper respiratory kids are awesome and i don't know my feelings are i still don't want to expose somebody if they don't have to be exposed so we kept waiting we waited and then finally there was like four days we didn't hear anything so then we felt comfortable you know where we do the parenting thing we both felt comfortable we sent her it was awesome we got a bunch of work done filming all that good stuff and then you hear the next day that not only one of her teachers a kid in her class has it so i guess we are back at square one and yep yeah, we'll Keep her home on Tuesday, and hopefully she wasn't exposed and back to playing Paw Patrol and all that good stuff. But I'm glad I'm in a position that I could do that in. Uh, But, you know, breaks are good. You guys know. A little bit of sweet, sweet respite. There was a post in our uh, free group, which you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash FASD forever. And there was a post about having respite in the car being one of those times and man oh man i was that person right catching your breath so that was some of the best times for me you know as a foster parent i used to go pick up tara from work and that 45 minutes there and back was some of the most pleasurable quiet time so if that's you if you sit into the car man if you're in the car right now listening to this uh, you're awesome if this is how you get a break do whatever you can by whatever means necessary because respite is important to calm the chaos that's going on in your head to let the proverbial snowfall if we look at you know those snow globes where you shake a snow globe and then it looks like it's snowing all over the place but then when you let it settle you can see the picture on the inside i kind of think about our mind like that and so if sitting in the car lets you do that Listening to this podcast allows you to do that. Well, giddy up. So I'm uh, moving forward. We got a good one. We have a good one today because the good news is there have been an increase in studies. I'm talking tenfold in the last few years, which is exceptional. And as you know, I like to talk about studies. I like to bring people on who are doing studies because that's the best knowledge. Anecdotal is great, but there's nothing beats data to help you in making a decision. That's what the research is for. It is to enlighten us and to let us know as parents, as professionals, to make better decisions moving forward because we can go off what the data is telling us. And so doing this interview, talking to Dr. Penny Cook and Robin McCarthy, who I come up with an awesome nickname, at least I think it's awesome. You'll have to be the judge of that. But they were part of the team from Salford University in the UK in Manchester that did the very first like prevalence study on fetal alcohol in the UK. Well, you'd think, Jeff, from maybe my ignorance or understanding that there's a huge drinking culture in the UK, wouldn't there be one before? Not necessarily. But what was intriguing about this interview, I'm going to get to it right in a second here, is all of the stories behind it. All of the, you know, the struggle of the science 
the things that they had to do in order to make things happen. And it is my goal by sharing these stories that you could see how hard these people are working. And it's not just sitting in a lab and having people come into a room and they're testing them. That's just not the way it works. You know, I always thought studies were from like back in the day. Just picture this when I was a kid. And of course, you know, one of my favorite movie franchises is Ghostbusters. And I'll always remember Ghostbusters 2 where they have the character Egon and he's talking to the other character, Sigourney Weaver's character, Dana Barrett, and he's doing a study and he's raising the temperature in the room in marriage counseling and he's increasing it every half an hour. And then in the other room, he has the uh, little girl with a puppy. And then there's the funniest line. He's like, let's see what happens when we take away the puppy. What are you working on, Egon? I'm trying to determine whether human emotions actually affect the physical environment. It's a theory Ray and I had when we were still Ghostbusters. Can they see us? No. They think they're here for marriage counseling. We kept them waiting for two and a half hours, and I've been gradually increasing the temperature in the room. It's up to 95 degrees at the moment. Now my assistant is asking them if they'd mind waiting another half hour. Oh, good. Very good. We'll do the happiness index next. Let's see what happens when we take away the puppy. It's not like that. They're often out. They're searching. They're looking. They're tracking people down. They're meeting people on their terms to get the results. So it's excellent. So who are we talking to today? I need to preface who it is because, man, these people are smart and these people are caring and these people are awesome. So we're talking to Professor Penny Cook. After gaining her PhD from the University of Liverpool in 1996, Penny took a Royal Society funded fellowship in Stockholm University. She joined Liverpool John Moores University Centre for Public Health in 1998 as a research fellow and was made a reader in public health epidemiology in 2007. There's more stuff there. But she's done a lot. Penny joined the University of Salford in June 2012 and was made professor in 2013. She is currently carrying out an NIHR-funded Community Alcohol Health Champions Project, which is looking at how the communities can support each other with alcohol advice and whether communities can influence the local alcohol licensing decisions. She also leads a research team investigating the impacts of alcohol exposure during pregnancy and associated fetal alcohol spectrum disorders in collaboration with the National FASD Clinic. There's more. Just get it. She's doing a lot of good work, right? And this is the study we're going to talk about. Her associate, which is also, she's super cool too, and her name is Robin McCarthy. Couldn't find a bio because I think they were away. But on her Twitter page, it just says, parent geek, originally trained as an optometrist, now public health researcher, interested in child development, mixed methods, impact, and policy change. You're going to love them. Uh, we'll come back and talk about it. If you're ready, I'm ready. Let's go. Friends, here I am. I'm going all the way across the pond. You know, FASD is absolutely an international disability. And I am joined by my friends, Professor Penny Cook and Robin McCarthy, all the way from Manchester. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Hello. It's a real pleasure to be here. That's awesome. That's yeah, you know, it's great because I follow you guys on Twitter and I like to keep abreast of what's going on. And two things struck me. One is the UK is absolutely gaining momentum, right? From my perspective. And number two, I could not believe this was the first prevalence study done in the UK. I just like, and not from a place of ignorance, I just would have thought because of the history, because of what you guys are already doing in certain areas of FASD, I would have thought this would have happened a lot longer ago. So I will say that. 
But first, before I get started, Professor, can I call you Penny? Yes, please do. But also Professor is cool, right? Because of Marvel, you know, Professor X. Okay, Professor. I think I like that better, by the way. Okay. <laughs> I like to do origin stories when we're talking about Marvel and, and this sort of thing. So I watched and was doing research for the interview. Ten years ago, you said you were doing some work on alcohol and pregnancy. Is that the first time you had heard about FASD? Yeah, I'm going to say sort of 2008-ish. I think I'd always been kind of aware of it. I knew what the words, well, I knew what FAS stood for. I hadn't really heard about FASD. And yeah, it was a consequence of drinking in pregnancy. But it never been, it never really come across my radar as being something that was particularly common or, you know, it just wasn't really talked about. So I did a lot of work around drinking in the general population, drinking in young women, young men. I did a lot of work around drinking and sex, sexual behavior, but it was always in the context of drinking can lead to risky sexual behavior and unplanned pregnancies, that being an undesirable consequence in itself or, you know, a sexually transmitted Mm -hmm. infection, but not really the consequence. It never, I don't know, I didn't make those connections to be the consequence that the child could be born with FAS or FASD that didn't really factor into our thinking in the alcohol research world in the UK at that time. Now, don't ruin this for me, but what I'm picturing you is the professor and I'm picturing the music playing and you're at your desk and you're flipping through files and you're going, wait a second, your eyes get bigger while you make connections. You guys all know those movie scenes I'm talking about. That's how it was like for you, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, because... What happens is someone rings me up and says, hey, I need you to come and do a talk about FASD and the prevalence of FASD. And I'm like going, what? I don't know much about this. Quick, (laughs) quick. Right to the bat cave, right? And so you to the lair and you start learning about it. What was that moment or moments where you're like, holy banana, like there is something more here. There is something going on. Well, I mean, in those days, I was working with another researcher. She's not in the field anymore because she's kind of left to do other things. But Michaela Moleo, and she was the one that went to do this presentation and put together what we knew. We didn't know much. So we talked instead about the prevalence of drinking in young women and harm rates of alcohol hospitalizations, because we were sort of extrapolating that if that was an issue, then there must be affected pregnancies. And it was her who met the wonderful... Dr. Raja Mukherjee, who I'm now pleased to say we can call him Professor Raja Mukherjee because he's got an honorary professorship at the University of Salford, where where we are. And the podcast loves him. We love him. We've had him on the show. Everyone just admires him. And so no doubt. I I mean, uh, I would say, you know, I think most people would say any research that's coming out of the UK has been sort of kind of really encouraged and supported and is really because of Raja he's the where where it sort of it's all started and yeah so he was there and he really got my colleague Michaela really enthused and engaged and we started working at it from there really unfortunately Michaela moved on to other things and but we've been plugging away and ever since then really we did a little paper we wrote a little paper in 2011 where we sort of looked at how few, we sort of dredged the databases and found how few formal diagnoses there were, and yet how much alcohol 
consumption there was and how that varied across the country, but it didn't bear any resemblance to the number of diagnoses. So it just of FASD. So um, it, that was really just a sort of a little paper that said there's no good using routinely collected data because it clearly isn't being diagnosed, it's not being picked up or not in those systems that we searched. So that's still a reference that we use quite often to say, you know, there's not enough information in the UK. And ever since then, you know, we've always said that no one's going to really pay enough attention to this unless we do the prevalence study. Nobody's going to believe it. And I think some of those papers, those wonderful systematic reviews by Popover and Lang et al., you know, that group, they were really helpful because they started using an estimate. They sort of modelled the estimate. So for all the countries that did have drinking in pregnancy estimates, but didn't have an FASD active case finding study, they modelled what it would be. And they came up with a figure of 3.24%. And for the UK, and I thought that was really helpful for us to show, you know, so we could start saying, look, it's likely to be really common. But still, you know, you get people that won't believe it until you've sort of actually done the prevalence study. Right. Now, from what I understand as a North American, take this for what it, who I spoke all around the world and subsequently the UK is probably one of the only places I haven't been just saying. Now, Robin, you are, you know, in the school process, you're in this process. Can you, and I know it's only one person's opinion, but can you give us folks over here in the West, what's the drinking culture like? Now, especially for a young woman like yourself in school, or what's it like in the culture there? Yeah, we we definitely have a British culture where drinking takes a centre stage. And certainly my generation, I think this, the data shows us that actually the younger generations are drinking less. But certainly my generation drank heavily, generally, through our 20s and 30s. And especially in the area that me and Penny work in. In Greater Manchester, we know that we have higher levels of drinking in Greater Manchester than other parts of the country. And we know we have higher levels of alcohol harm. That was one of the reasons why we felt it was so important to do the study in Greater Manchester as well. What was the messaging that you ever got about drinking in pregnancy, if any? Well, I think I was probably one of the exceptions. I remember when I first joined the project, Penny saying to me, well, how do you already know so much about FASD? And I was trying to think when I first heard about it and I remember really early on watching an American movie about a Native American who adopts a child who has FAS I think yeah I think I know what you're talking about yeah a long time ago so I would have been in like I think I was like a teenager at the time and then I've always been interested in child development and I've stayed interested in FASD and other neurodevelopmental conditions as well Right. So you already had an interest. But overall, was there little to no messaging about the harms? Well, when I was pregnant, sorry to cut in. No, no, this is the we're just having a discussion. Yeah, I think it's quite relevant to say that the formal advice was ambiguous at that point. Now, they changed it in 2016. So too late for me. But when I was pregnant, the formal advice was it's probably safer not to drink. But if you do want to drink, There's no evidence that there's harm if you just drink one or two small drinks a week, but no more than twice a week. And 
no more than one or two. I can't remember exactly right, right. one or two. So I think what that did in my head and in the head of people who were pregnant at the same time as me 20 years ago was opened up a possibility that it's actually not that harmful to drink in small quantities. So it would be very common for people to have a glass or so, you know, just one. Um, yeah. And what we know, especially out of Australia now, that even low levels of prenatal alcohol exposure it can do, you know, to do yeah, something, absolutely. right? It can do, can do something. So um, was really interesting was Michaela, who'd started on this journey with me that I've, who I've already mentioned, was pregnant at, when she really got into it. And then she was pregnant at the time. And her midwife actually told her to have a glass of red wine to relax. And yeah. this was, again, it was before the guidance was updated and she was furious. I have a, a three-year-old. I have a three-year-old. Okay. So that's, this is only three years ago and we had a midwife and they talked about in labor, you can have some alcohol or like when you're before or even to induce. So yeah, even in Canada, you know, there's pockets, it's pockets and we do have some places that are doing really well, but it's not like it's the golden goose over here. So just so know that too. Right. Okay. So, but you're talking about Michaela, she's really interested in it. Where did your enthusiasm come from Penny? Because you guys really struggled and had lots of challenges to even get funding for this bad boy. So you talk about how she was, how did you well working you? with Michaela meeting Raja myself gradually reading more about it and really just starting to develop some projects together just trying to write some grant applications to get to do the prevalence study getting knocked back two or three times and and you know it's always the thing is that it wasn't my always it couldn't be the main job I was doing and it still isn't you know there isn't enough funding in it yet in the UK to say right this is all I'm doing sure. so there's still so it's still a battle really there very little research funding has been spent in the UK I mean I think the research councils to my knowledge have not invested in any FASD related projects apart from that you know, to, to support people or to diagnose with FASD specifically. I don't think anything apart from a small study that we've got to develop an intervention. When you talk about knocked back, what did that mean? So you applied for grants, they say no? Like, is that what you mean in terms of... Yes, yes, applied for grants and they said no. So we didn't sell it well enough or it wasn't important or it wasn't in the remit of the funding body, I think. Because the problem is, is when you do a prevalence study, there's a little bit of a so what. Most of the funding bodies want to sort of, they want the, the interventions or they want to know what to do to improve it. Um, and yeah, they're just, they weren't set up. They couldn't see the why we needed to do the prevalence study. But they and eventually no one, did. Well, Greater Manchester took some really great leaps forward. They decided they were going to invest in preventing alcohol-exposed pregnancies and they felt they needed to prove but there was so as well, they did a big program of things, you know, all sorts of things they did, including, you know, based on the choices model that was also developed in North America, which is like combining alcohol advice with contraception. So if you are sexually active, you should have secure contraception or you should. And if you haven't got secure contraception, you shouldn't be drinking. So there's that model. They, they put in extra support for people who were struggling with alcohol addiction in pregnancy and did all sorts of work around that. And they also, they strengthened the midwife, the pathways through 
maternity so that midwives are checking in right at the beginning of pregnancy halfway through making records of alcohol consumed giving brief advice referring if necessary for more specialist support so they did a whole package of things and part of what they did was invest in a small scale prevalent study just to prove it's there was that a happy day were you blindsided by the approval or did you know it was coming well we knew we'd been working with them to help them develop their whole program so you always still can't quite believe it when it comes but it felt that as if things were starting to move in the UK as if Greater Manchester was really taking a lead which we were very proud of now, yeah that is awesome okay now pretend you're talking to us folks who are not professors how does one go about setting up a prevalence study like what did you do i know you had what was 200 and some odd folks what did you do like do you recruit first how does that work well i wonder if robin should talk about it because yeah like honestly she was incredible she did so, so robin how do you work. do that now like because you hear oh the prevalence study and so for my audience listening and it also helps caregivers to explain mm-hmm. this stuff it just deepens their understanding but also yeah. i'll preface we're not professors uh-huh. My job was made easier because when I joined the project, Penny and Alan and Raja had already designed this great idea, this great structure of the study. I'm sure most of people listening to the podcast, and I'm sure you know, Jeff, that FASD is difficult to diagnose. That's why it's not diagnosed more. Yes, ma'am. It's difficult and it's expensive and it's complicated. And so we already had a really well thought out design, which was a good balance of trying to get a really accurate amount and the right amount of information about each child so we could be fairly sure that they had or didn't have FASD and that's no mean feat but to do that in as efficient and cost-effective way as possible so that we could screen as many children as possible and one of the ways we did that was rather than going into a school and assessing all of the children because that would have taken a really long time and cost a lot of money we did a two-stage screening process. So we went in first of all, and we just did basic measurements and we highlighted the children that we felt were higher risk. So we already knew from other research that certain groups of children would be more likely to have FASD. And so we invited those children in for the full assessment. And we did two hours with parents, including some validated questionnaires, things like the short sensory profile, which people might have heard of. And we did about two hours of assessments with the children. And we took photographs of their faces to put into software. And then we took all that data together and we put it in front of the experts. We were really lucky to have working on the project. And then had these case conferences, like big meetings, basically, where we discussed each case in, in detail and decided, came up with a decision about whether we thought they had FASD, also whether we thought that maybe they might have autism spectrum disorder or ADHD or other conditions. And then we wrote up reports and sent them back to the parents. So in a nutshell, that's basically what we did. Some of the really difficult parts were convincing hearts and minds. So we were really fortunate to recruit some really great schools who were really positive and worked really hard for us. And I think it would have been difficult without those schools. So for my small mind, that sounds like cherry picking, isn't it? If you went to like, do you know that term like cherry pick? If you went to an area where maybe the prevalence would be a bit higher 
based on your findings in cases, right, based on 220 children, research shows that FASD might affect 1.8 or 1% to 3.4, which is pretty accurate to Dr. Popova's initial numbers. Is what I'm saying right? No, well, I can see why it might sound like that, but actually, because we went back to the original number, so when we looked at our cases where we found we thought that they had FASD, we then went back to the bigger number. So for our prevalence, we compared those numbers, those small numbers of the children we did find to the bigger number that we started off with when we did the first bigger basic screening. Got so it. We, we didn't take our prevalence number just from the smaller groups. You compared so it any- to, so that was the two part. Great. This is great because now I'm understanding yeah. it. So it was two phases. And so the yeah. second phase was a broader area. Was that correct? And how many people in the first phase did you screen? It was about 220 children. And we had a really good participation rate for the first, for that first early phase. So I think it was about 95% of those children went through basic screening. And then we invited, we identified about 50 children from those who we felt were high risk. We also, we didn't want to miss anybody. So we also, for all the children where we hadn't found a reason to invite them in, the letter that their parents received said, you know, because we all know at that age, especially children with FASD won't necessarily always have been picked up at school or by our measurements. So we also sent letters back to parents to say, we've not found a reason to be concerned, but if you're concerned and you want to opt your child in, please do. And parents did. And some of those children did turn out to have FASD. And all of those children that were opted in by their parents, we did find some significant findings. So they definitely had some significant additional needs. From 220, then you did the second phase with 50. Well, no, we couldn't. We wanted to, yeah, we wanted to assess 50. And that's another point where we struggled. And we struggled to convince parents to consent to the full assessment for their children. Why do you think that was? Lots of reasons. Some parents were really offended. Some parents were really upset. Um, I asked this because... Was it Dr. Popova who did the study with the Toronto District School Board? And she said that same thing. Parents were now offended. And as the study went on, there was less participation because people were like, hold up, head in the sand a little bit, right? Stigma? I have to say, that was actually a relatively small number of the parents who didn't manage to get consent in. The other parents we struggled to reach. We literally struggled to contact them. And school struggled to contact them physically, by telephone, by letter, by trying to catch them at the school gates. And we really tried really hard. And I guess to some extent, some of the parents we wanted to get consented in were living quite chaotic lives. And so it makes sense that they may have been harder to contact. And actually, we were expecting, we were to some extent, weren't we expecting some parents to be resistant to the idea? And we were expecting maybe we couldn't get in touch with some parents. But actually what we weren't expecting was children who left the school. Quite a high number of these children, these higher risk children, moved or we had some children go into a private foster care arrangement where nobody could legally consent to them taking part, mm. for example. So lots of those, and some of the children were currently under the care of children's services. And in the UK, that means you have to get permission of a senior social worker. And we really struggled to get consent for all of those children as well. Was there some frustrating moments, could we say, Robin? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I can tell you one time I had arranged to meet a social worker and she'd agreed to sign the consent form. And I went and sat and waited outside her office for an hour and she never showed up. I think that would be my top. Do you know how important this story is? Because people see the end and out of this number, we found this number, but they don't really get privy to all the work that went into that, all the variables that went in all the hard work, not only budget reasons, but, you know, socioeconomic for trying to find the parents and all these barriers to get this finished. Now, and the, the other thing is, so just to say, that's yeah, why sure. I'm quite cautious about because the way you do these things, you have to go back to your baseline population. Although what does that mean? One, Sorry. So, so, for we go our, back, so we go back to, we say we have this principle that we started at looking at 210 children. So when we find a certain number of FASD, we're now going to write at the end of the process, and we find you know nearly 2% had FASD. But when you track through what we actually did, we only managed to measure that do the in-depth measures on half of the ones that we'd invited so if we got all of them it would be quite easy to see how you'd have double that prevalence because as i say that you can't just say that what the proportion was out of the ones we managed to measure we have to the way you do these epidemiological studies you have to say my baseline population was 210 so that unless you've got a lot more funds to do some more fancy sort of mathematics so what they did some of the great work that came out of the states mm. that we really admired was philip may's work where he did that huge prevalence study with six thousand. i was on the call for the press i don't know how i get in there sometimes i'm sneaky right so six thousand kids 222 met the criteria you know what blew me away about that professor only two had a previous yeah. diagnosis so, you know, because he really went to those same kind, it doesn't surprise, well, it does, it's... No, no, I, it doesn't surprise, it's awful, but it doesn't surprise you, right? They went to the sort of, those kind of like normal communities as well, didn't they? Very, I would say probably quite kind of similar to where we're working, kind of normal, mm -hmm. working class or middle yeah. class, kind of... Blue collar towns, like they, yeah. they went to four different regions from my, you know, yeah. I could, hope it I'm not confabulating, but extraordinary piece of work but i mean you know four million dollars or something I yeah sure sure understood, so completely understood different scale but when he just did the simple method that we're doing because we're forced to do this simple method where you just say well we found this many cases and we'll relate that back to the total baseline i think that they had that figure of one percent and then you know i don't know if you recall from that paper he said it's somewhere sort of between one and five percent mm -hmm. but when you speak to him he says the five percent is more realistic because that's taking into account all the children that we couldn't measure when we used more fancy sampling methods and we did more like we did more con children who were controls so like children who had apparently nothing no issue no reason to measure them so they were able to do more sophisticated sort of mathematics on it so I, you know i do strongly suspect that our figures would have been bigger but without the scale of the study we were doing we just have to be really and you have to put out the facts this is what you find i understand that right that's doing the good work so you believe around five percent and that would still like as in Canada, they say four, right? Taking everything into consideration, Canada FASD says around 4%, but that's still, it's still, man, it, that's yeah, well, low. Well, women drink more in the UK at that, those kinds of sure. ages, I think, than in the States as well. 
I mean, you know, if you go to campus in the States, you've got people not really able to go to a bar until they're 21. So while it doesn't stop everybody, it's certainly another barrier, right? But but students come to Manchester, for example, because of the pub and beer and bar culture you know but so that they can go pub crawls and that you know that's what it's known at the for age of 18 it's, uh, it's 18 know, and, yeah we have yeah. one province that is 19 where i am and 18 in the province of quebec that's fascinating so see this i'm glad we talked because it's always good to get the story behind the story behind the numbers so you're saying or the study is saying the research is saying extrapolated to the whole greater Manchester area between 619 and 1238 kids per year are born on the spectrum or that will be starting school, right? So to get that clear, it's not kids born, it's starting school, right? Well, yeah, it would, we would, yeah, I mean, it sort of depends what's happened to drinking trends in pregnancy. And one problem in the UK is that we're not measuring that very often or often enough, there aren't enough big surveys. We used to sort of measure it quite frequently. So what, so being born now, I don't really have a pin. I don't think anyone has a very accurate pin on who's drinking in pregnancy right. now. I mean, I think we still know that a lot of pregnancies are unplanned and we still know that drinking is very prevalent. So we, we uh, know it's up 41% here in Canada because of the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. The pandemic's going to fuel the conditions, isn't it, for both where well, we've had some tr- really tragic cases recently of postnatal neglect you know neglect and even leading to homicide of young children um, two tragic cases in in our news recently but of course that'll extend to prenatal neglect won't it and um, alcohol use domestic Mm -hmm. violence and all of the really oh yeah all the ripple effects it's not just you know it doesn't affect just the brain and body it affects everybody and affects society and all of those cascading effects now but I suppose all we could say from our study was that that was based on people who were pregnant nine years ago. So if that was happening now, that you know, you'd probably reasonably expect children entering primary school age now would be similar sorts of rates. Whether what we could exactly say what the proportion being born now are, that, that's the t- difficult thing. Even if we say 619 kids going into school with unprepared institutions to take them. Right. And then they just. Yeah, I mean, from what one was system. quite striking actually was just, you know, in general, it wasn't just the FASD, but in general, the neurodevelopmental difficulties weren't recognized in the schools. So Robin could say more about that because of looking at it personally. Yeah. We made a point of speaking to some of the parents who'd taken part and we spoke particularly to parents. It wasn't our plan, but we ended up speaking to parents who'd opted their child in to the study more often than not. And what they told us was we got some amazing stories about parents who've been trying to convince school that their child had additional needs for years and getting nowhere. Right. And we'd come in and assess the child separately and found that indeed these children did have significant additional needs. For example, there's one child who had an IQ of 66, I think, who wasn't even on the school's special education register. As far as wasn't a child with FASD, but it's just an example of how right. wide, more widely those people aren't being supported. Yeah, interesting. But you have to start somewhere, right? We have to start somewhere and you put in the work. And so now here's what I'm going to ask. So because right at the beginning of our chat, you said nobody really paid any heed to Popova's systematic review because they didn't do it here. So you did it here. You have the report. You got the numbers. And what happened? 
when you started telling people about it? What was the reaction? You know, I think it went down. You know, it did get the recognition that we hoped for. It got quite a lot of national attention. There was a little bit of a, well, that's Manchester. How do we know it's the same here? So it's always, you know, we're, oh, all, gee, we're still calling for a bigger study. We've had recently in the UK, the Department for Health and Social Care, they wrote a needs assessment. In that needs assessment, one of the findings was that there needs to be a national prevalence study. So that's actually authored by the government. So the government has basically said there needs to be a bigger scale prevalence study. So I would say what next is it would be to do that bigger scale study. And so we're hoping that there'll be a call for proposals to do that hopefully that might follow so that's one kind of so what and I think on our personal research agenda is what do you you know now we've established it's common the next so what is what do we do to support these people and I think our colleagues who are kind of clinical or responsible for services and you know they're all busy trying to establish the pathways to get the diagnoses because we're not set up to diagnose all these cases it's very patchy and it's different over the different parts of the country yeah same 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 here like we have some expertise and professionals you know yeah all of that same story probably but probably just you know a decade behind you like so robin how do you feel are you proud of this or from what i know about researchers is studies now you just have more questions. And so now there's just more things to study. Like, did you take a moment to enjoy that you completed this? And that's the literally the first of its kind in your country, which probably has 100 generation history of drinking. Like, how did you feel? It's amazing. It feels really important. And I mean, I personally feel really lucky to have had a chance to be involved and to work with the team that Penny managed to put together with so many people who really know their stuff and care and get the idea that FASD is a big deal and it really affects people. And, you know, you really get a sense of there's there's now, there's a lot of people, passionate people who are working towards trying to make things better. And that's really exciting. And we knew when we finally got the paper published, we really hoped anyway, that that would get a lot of attention and it did. And we were really pleased. Lots of of media. For me, it's very satisfying because it's actually the question about the national prevalence of FASD is sort of the reason I originally got into research because I didn't always work in research. So it was as a result of a conversation with Alan about his PhD that got me into research in the first place. So it was very satisfying for me to be able to ask the question, well, how common is FASD? And then get a chance to work on a project that got to answer it. What, and this is for both of you, what is your least favorite part of doing this work? What is like, you're like, grinds my gears, makes me mad, or is really boring? Or is there, because it can't all, I don't picture you guys going la 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 la. Like, is there anything that gets under your skin when you're doing this stuff? The grant application rejections. Got it. That is the thing that. We got some feedback, we got one rejected last summer, and I think the feedback was the panel did not see the importance of the topic. And I, I just could have wept because I thought my main argument was it's really common. We've got this guidance coming out. It's called NICE Quality Standards. It's going to, oh, it's a it's sort of thing for the UK where it's going to sort of, it's going to be really influential. It's going to say that there should be services there. 
okay so you know so the timing is great so i think you know you've got all these things for the killer argument it's so common the timing is perfect because everyone's going to need interventions we've got an intervention already got some sort of very preliminary information on and there's literally nothing there that's like it so the novelty was just you know often in any other field of research you can't you're sometimes jostling for what's new you know because there's so much out there and you read the literature and loads of people are working on lots of things but in this area you know there's there's really rather little so for our particular idea for an intervention there's not much there so you think you've put this absolutely killer argument together how can anyone not see that that's important you know not only is it common it's catastrophic if you don't support these individuals for those individuals and their families and for society it's so costly all the elements of how can anyone not see it and i know that probably all the people listening to this podcast will say completely get it but how can you then get that one line that says the panel could not see the importance of this topic and you just you weep yeah and all the effort going into this right because i'm sure it's not just a few pages and you write down a couple boxes how i usually do things you guys really have to go through things over and over i resubmitted it last month in the hope that the climate is better now and and we got through to the second round so i'm a bit more positive and it was a 70 page document Jeez, and it's you... not really for a vast amount of money either this is just right. for our more of a feasibility test it, it's <laughs> important for people to hear this stuff because as a caregiver it can feel like nobody's you know they're all alone on this island and but you guys truly are you know working behind the scenes to try and get the ball rolling here one step at a time and i think that's uber important what's next you're working on a few other things we usually have a section called the shameless self-promotion section now so if you can humbly brag please about what are you guys working on now what are you doing next where are things going well i've just alluded to this project so we've developed what we think is a, a really useful intervention we've run it through very small scale testing that was alan price who we've mentioned he was the main researcher developing that we've tested it on nine families and it's basically a seven week parenting program where you just get groups of parents together just teach them really that fasd is a brain-based condition the philosophy really is that it just reorientates parents so that they understand that they they need to think differently about their children and parent them differently take care of themselves and make sure that they're de-stressed themselves before they try and sort of you know work with their children and just it's not heavily therapeutic it doesn't need highly qualified individuals we've just to deliver this we've shown that we can train people with sort of basic kind of training skills and we do it in collaboration always with the parents as an experienced caregiver of someone with FASD plus someone with fairly generic sort of training kind of skills it doesn't need to be like a clinical or very costly thing to implement the program runs for seven weeks and we cover various topics over that and then the idea will be that we sort of measure primary thing that we think will change first is parenting stress and perhaps parenting self-efficacy so these are terms that we've got some sort of theories behind them and there's some ways of measuring it it's called validated questionnaires so if we do that before and then after you'd hope to see some improvements and if you've got a group who haven't had the intervention we would hope 
that the group that had received the intervention would see the improvements and the group that hadn't, you wouldn't expect to see the improvements. So what we're really, really pleased about is that we've got some funding from a charity to help support that. But I think what it really helps, because actually one of the problems with funding this sort of study is that we can get the funding to give it to the treatment group. So that call it treatment and control. The treatment group's going to get the intervention, which is called right. specific. Now, what does specific stands for? Sulford Parent FASD information course. Oh, I think. Yeah. There's so many acronyms, <laughs> dude. Don't yeah. even worry about them. We thought it was neat. We just call it specific, <laughs> specifically for FASD. And half of them will get specific and the other half will have to wait a few weeks before they can get it now often with the funding it's quite hard to pay for the waiting list group to get the intervention and so that's really where the extra funding is going to help it's going to make sure that all everybody gets the intervention now if we're not successful i told you about the frustrating process of applying for funding if we're not successful with that we'll still have some money to give more people so and we'll, we've only trained nine families so far we'll still be able to get a bigger more training going and we'll be able to say something we'll be able to do some sort of and get a little bit more of an idea about how well it works but what we found from just sort of more anecdotally from the nine families that took part was it they would sort of describe sort of like oh light bulb moments oh now I understand why he wants to tip all his toys all over the floor and rummage through them mm-hmm. and now I don't need to get that's a sort of sensory thing I don't need to get frustrated about that now that I understand why he's doing it another one who said they'd had their first night's sleep kind of ever because they decluttered their daughter's room and another one who said well I could never get my child to wear his coat and now we've realized again another sort of sensory thing we've let him choose his own coat and now we have no problems arming them with the information they come up with the interventions and there's more peace at home no I think it's absolutely it's brilliant and I'm going to give all my positive juju cross all my fingers that it happens the other thing we were really keen just to say we were so keen about it was that it could be quite cheap to deliver I think I mentioned that already but the idea is if if we've got a problem on this scale of all these people who suddenly are going to need support we need something that doesn't need to be delivered by maybe the mental health professionals who are incredibly busy and they would be needed for the more serious problems but you know as a first line if we could just get all the families onto here as the first part of their management plan our hope would be well it would be freely available we just need to get enough people trained up to do it just a couple of days training so you know yeah we hope that that could be a real game changer yeah, it would be a game changer, right? If, you know, if you've already had nine that are, and even out of nine, three are having success, that's still like a, a great ratio, right? Again, I'm going to give all the positive vibes that you guys are going to make it happen. And then subsequently, you're going to get all that money. And then one day you're going to say, hey, Jeff, come on over to the UK. And then we'll be able to talk to the folks and we'll have a good time with it. Now, you guys are so busy doing all this stuff. I know FASD isn't even what you do for your main stuff. But let me ask you this. When you're not worried about grants, like, what do you do for fun, Penny? What do I do for fun? <laughs> I mean, I do. This is fun for me. Come on, my, you... my research. Oh, do I have There's a no hobbies family? at home? Oh, I have a, a lovely family. And do you know what? I do spend too much time at work. Like all work. of these questions. <laughs> um, and like, what do you do? I do get do? in trouble from my husband. Yeah, what do you do? I get in trouble. Like, and you're like, I don't even know. That's like, 
it almost reminds me of like, do you remember like Ghostbusters and you're like the smart one, Egon, and he collects spores, molds and fungus like that's But you guys. So you have a family, though. How many kids you got? I've got two kids. They're both just left for college. So what? I, we suddenly kind of got an empty nest. And so I suppose my main project at the moment is renovating the house, which is kind of we, <laughs> we sort of the children left the nest and then we made a, a mess of it. And, shredded their rooms to and re- putting it all back together again. how does that so feel like that. now that they're gone is it good do you miss them or is it a combination of like both i think with children every step is a delight in a different way and you get so excited when you have this little baby you get excited when they reach their milestones one of them has a neurodevelopmental issue and, and was later reaching those milestones and you're even more proud of that one you know when they start to do things and the fact that he's now at a university and he's independent you know was terrifying and just so that this new step where you're the relationship is much more like you're dealing with an independent adult it's just so thrilling to see them both doing that and managing but at the same time I know that they're going to come back for the Christmas holidays tomorrow and they're both going to think well, I need a rest from looking after myself. And I'm suddenly going to have to remember what it's like to cook for four people and not two and clean up after four people because it's amazing how quickly you get used to not having them around. With your one child who's neurodiverse, do you think that made you more empathetic in your work with FASD? Yes. It probably did make me more interested. For a long time, I spent time worrying about whether the glass of beer I had before I knew I was pregnant you know and I spent hours quizzing Raja about whether that could have been any anything causal I think he has straightforward autism spectrum disorder and his talent is music and he's so creative with it and he doesn't get that from me because I'm I'm a straight down the line scientist I can't play or hold a tune so he's gone into this new world of I can't even help him with, you know, I want to sort of get involved with his assignments and, you know, well, what are you doing? And send me your essays. I just, it's all a different language <laughs> to me. But that's interesting then. But so even you pondering that and worrying that about y- yourself, then you must know what other women are going through and why the stigma is so big. You know, even having the thoughts of, was this me? And maybe the barriers to getting more people on board is reaching out to, you know, with stigma first. Yes. And I think some of the people that Robin did speak to as part of that follow-up study, you know, were birth mothers. It was a sort of sensitive and Robin would say more about it. Sensitive and quite tricky. Yeah. How was that, Robin? I think we, well, you know, right from the start, everyone on the team felt really important that we, you know, we leave the shame and stigma at the door. Sure. And we tried to approach interviewing the parents in a really open-minded way and to make them feel comfortable and not judged. And the parents that spoke to us, so there were some birth parents who, where their report on, on their child came back as saying the child likely has FASD. And doubtably that was hard news to receive. And the fact that they were still prepared to talk to us and be interviewed about the experience, I took to mean that we must have handled it reasonably well for them to still even want to talk to us at all. And they told us that it was tough, that it was a shock, but that ultimately it was a relief to know that they were right, that they, in all cases, suspected their child had some additional needs. 
and it was useful information that made things, some of the parents said they felt it made things better in the long run, just being armed with the information about their child. Yeah, well said. Well said, guys. It's, I think it's brilliant work that you guys are doing. And it might seem slow at first, but hopefully this is the, the snowball effect. You know, in Canada, we get the snowball effect because we get a lot of snow, especially where I live. I'm going to put all the juju, all the good vibes in my... Can people get involved, right? If somebody is listening to this, because we do have quite the contingent in the UK. Is there, Penny, is there something folks can do? How can they help? Do you got anything oh. like that? Yeah, I mean, taking part in studies, like we were going to talk about my projects that we're doing around the criminal justice system, encounters with the criminal justice system, and we're looking to recruit. So if people want to help and have... So No, let's talk about that, because I want people to hear that. And then, so talk about what you're doing. We're the boss. I'm the boss. We can take as long as we want. So talk about that, and then how can people get involved? So that's a project that's actively involved in recruiting at the moment. And so it's a PhD student of mine. David Gilbert, but he likes to be known as Gilbert. He's written his first paper on the topic, which he's really proud of, and I'm very proud of him. It's a systematic review, which is basically a trawl of all the papers that have ever been written about FASD and encounters with the criminal justice system, but with a special focus on where anybody's actually taken measurements with the people with FASD, rather than just talking about the theory of why people with FASD are vulnerable to getting involved or getting in trouble with the law, getting involved with the police. And in that, he found only five papers have looked at FASD, actually Mm. taken data from um, young people or people with FASD. And they're all either in Canada or in the USA. So basically nothing at all in the UK. So it's very unusual when you start as a researcher and it's something that takes a bit of, you know, for a PhD student, it takes a bit of getting your head around. What do you do when there's nothing been done? You know, where do you start? Sure. It's, it's a it's, daunting um, task. It's incredible. So he's been interviewing parents who've, who experience, who perhaps with older children or young adults who've actually had some experience with the criminal justice systems. Because it's hard to get a diagnosis in this country and it's even harder a while ago, there's not so many, it's harder to recruit those older ones, you know, because, you know, obviously, I think more people who have diagnoses tend to be on the younger side, so they haven't had time to go through and have those experiences. So that's one element of his study. And then the other thing he's really keen to do, and he's got some people lined up already interested, and that's to look at a younger subset of people. So I think his age criteria is at 12 to 17, and actually do the suggestibility scale on them. So I don't know if you've heard of this, but the Gudjonsen suggestibility scale, the GSS, it's a way of measuring whether people are likely to kind of change their stories. And we think that that's sort of vulnerability where you just you might be suggestible and it might be because of, you know, having a poor memory or confabulation. Um, so Intrusion errors. Yeah, there's a few re- theoretical reasons why that will be an issue. And I believe it's been done on a fairly small scale in one of the USA or Canada studies, but it's certainly not been done in the UK and it's not been done on very many people so and we want to try and sort of correlate that with some of the other issues that we might that some of the other sort of strengths or weaknesses that the so who who would qualify and and what how do they get in touch 
so a young person with FASD or their parents would would obviously need to sort of probably support them with it. it it's all done online so you probably need someone in the background kind of sort of it's quite difficult to get young people to focus on the other sure end of the so yeah probably so, harder mm-hmm. less stressful because you're not taking them somewhere but yeah also harder to keep them engaged with the computer so yeah if they wanted to take part the best way is probably through our website so i could plug our website yeah we? oh yeah shameless promotion shameless oh. promotion so that is hub dot salford dot ac dot uk forward slash fasd and on that there's also a way to get in touch with us through our email address which i also don't have to hand but i wonder if maybe that could be something that might go in the it will go on our blog, absolutely. Yeah, so our blog, fasdsuccess.com slash podcast. And of course, we'll put it on our social media. This was awesome. I really enjoyed doing this. You guys, again, you guys are doing hard work. You're just starting, but I have no doubt that you guys will snowball. And do, uh, when you guys get funding for your next project, Professor, will you come back on here and tell us all of the juicy details? Oh, we would be delighted to. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, Robin, guess what? So you know how she's Professor Penny Cook? And if we're talking a little bit Marvel, so I have a name for you that I came up with. Okay, so I am going to call you Robin, the maiden of Manchester, McCarthy. Okay. Okay. Now, isn't it cool? Because maiden is not as in a maiden as in an unmarried older woman. Maiden is in like a maiden voyage. Okay. Hey, what do you think? Robin, a uh, maiden of Manchester, McCarthy. Come on, I think that's gold. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I might change my Twitter name to that actually. Right, but isn't that true? Yeah. Like, so you did the first prevalence study on FASD, maiden voyage, right? Goes with the last name. Goes with Manchester. Come on, I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah, oh, but a little word for Salford as well, because that's where we're. So Salford is part of Greater Manchester. Come on, come on. Our, our I'm a Canadian. Fantastic, our fantastic university is the University of Salford. I'm Canadian. You know, we call it soccer. Like we're messed up. Okay, we don't we don't have things going on. But feel free to use that. I didn't get the warmest reception, and I understand. Keep throwing them out there, but everybody's got to have a good moniker. You guys were excellent. I really appreciate you doing this, guys. Thank you so much for enlightening me and uh, my audience. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having us. Wasn't that awesome? Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Robin, the maiden of Manchester McCarthy. What did you guys think? Was that that doable? Was that a good nickname? So good. I've never really heard a spin like this before in terms of what it actually takes and what goes on behind a research. So on behalf of myself and I'm sure everybody else, if you, you ladies are listening to this after, keep up the good work and we really appreciate what you guys are doing. Now, I have a couple of notes down here. What went on, you know, what they talked about right away was about drinking had been studied before in alcohol research, but it didn't go further at the time. I talked about drinking culture and Robin was saying that the data shows them that the younger generation drink less, but certainly her generation drank heavily through the 20s and 30s and especially in the greater Manchester area. They know that there was higher levels of drinking than other parts of the country and we know that they had higher levels of alcohol harm. That's one of the reasons why they chose to do it in Manchester. And I was asking Penny about what the culture like when she was pregnant. She said, when I was pregnant, 
The formal advice was it's probably safer not to drink, but there's no evidence of harm if you drink just one or two small glasses a week. Her prior research assistant, her midwife told her to drink a glass of wine to relax. So the knowledge is still not there. I can back it up. When Tara and I were meeting with a midwife and they were talking about drinking alcohol to induce labor or while you're in labor even, and I don't think that's right, frankly, is amazing, right? So for this research project, they struggled to get funding. Something Robin did say that I do agree with is FASD is difficult to diagnose. That's why it's not diagnosed more and it's expensive and it's complicated. Then they went on to talk about how they did this study. And then they also offered a chance for parents to opt in. And interesting, in all of those children, they found to have some sort of need in their kids, right? They also looked at FASD, ASD, ADHD. One thing that struck me, what they said was the difficult part was convincing hearts and minds. They struggled with getting 50 people for the second stage for three sessions. The reactions of parents who were either upset or offended, I could see that. Difficult to reach some parents, for example, living chaotic lives. You guys know all about that. Not in one place or the same numbers, perhaps being on the spectrum themselves. They never said that, I did. Children left the school, which was a high number that surprised them, and some were in foster care. That's why I said this is interesting. People don't know this and how she had to wait outside the office to talk to people. It was amazing. And so then they talked about the reaction once it was released. It received national attention, which was good. But there was some, well, this is Manchester. How do we know it's the same here? The Department of Health and Social Care has written a needs assessment, and one need was for a national prevalence study. So governor had said that they're hoping for a call. So, like... Now what? And so now that they've established it's common, what do they do to support the people? We have no setup to diagnose and there's a lack of expertise. That's what she said. We have no setup to diagnose and there is a lack of expertise. But there are a lot of passionate people trying to make things better. Dr. Mukherjee, you know, the folks, Sandra Butcher from the National FASD UK. There are people doing really good things. So I just want them to keep going. They want to change parenting stress and parenting self-sufficiency. That's why I say arm you with the information because you'll come up with the interventions because you know your kids the best. And then she talked about the disappointment of not getting approval on the first time for the project. One of the rejections stated the panel could not see the importance of the topic. Penny, she said, I could have wept. Their main arguments for funding is it's really common. It is so common. Like, how can you ignore the importance, she said. It's catastrophic if you don't support these individuals, their families, and society. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir here, and the researchers are pushing it. And as long as we're all pushing in the same direction, we will eventually get there. And on their Twitter, just the other day, they said, We are pleased to receive the news that our FASD prevalence study article is one of the most widely shared from the journal in the last half of the year. Congratulations, guys. You guys are doing amazing work. So there are a few things I want you guys to take from this. I'm hoping that you take from this. Is that, one, it is so prevalent. It is so prevalent, you are not alone. You are the majority, you are not the minority. So when you're talking about FASD, know that there are so many people out there going through the same thing and they just don't even know it yet. They don't even know that they are dealing with FASD. That's why it's important that we advocate. That's why it's important that we talk to people about FASD, not at people about FASD. 
The second thing I want you to take away from this is if you can and if you're able and if you qualify when you see these posters or you see this information up about an FASD study, volunteer. If your kids are up for it, have them volunteer. Do it because this helps us get the data. This helps, you know, them. Okay, so this helps the researchers get the data, which they are then able to take to advocates. Advocates are able to influence policy change. That's the whole goal. And then the policy changes and it's a ripple down effect. Instead of waiting for the end to trickle down, you could get to the start, run right to the head of the line, get right in the front lines. And I know you're dealing with the behaviors and the challenging issues around it, but you can also help these researchers get the data that they need so that they can make things change. We have to do it. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. And I know you are trying. I know you are a great parent. I know you are a great person. I know you are under a lot of stress. And I know that you are fighting. And I could see it. Nobody else, I could see it. I could feel it. I know that you're trying so hard. And sometimes it feels like you're not moving an inch, that you're not moving forward. But I guarantee you, keep pushing forward. You know, keep your finger on the sprint button in the video game of life and just keep hanging out with us here do not stop don't stop do not stop the goal is to prevent as many placement breakdowns as humanly possible if you need more support come join our free group facebook.com slash group slash fasd forever email me if you're looking for something then i'll do my best to guide you as best as i can in terms of resources or who i know or how i can connect you but do not be isolated keep going i freaking love you and if you keep showing up here week after week and you're listening to this things are going to get better they're going to get better by proxy because you are going to learn more and so you learn more and then you have better days at home and then when you have better days at home your nervous system is able to relax a little bit and then when your nervous system relaxes you're able to see a little bit more clear when you're able to see a little bit more clear you're able to make better decisions when you make better decisions you have better outcomes keep going even if you get your ass kicked get back up i freaking love your face thanks so much for being here and i will definitely see you back here next week all right have a great week and we'll talk soon all right bye